Welcome, Blanco. We're pleased you're with us for our D35 on the go, our District 35 podcast. We hope this allows you to listen, learn, and stay connected when it's convenient for you. I'm Katherine Wang. I have the pleasure of serving as the superintendent of our school district and your host. It is no secret that February can be a challenging month here in the Midwest as we battle the lack of sunlight, the cold weather, busy schedules. And I know our weather has been a little bit mild, but we definitely have had busy schedules. And today we are so pleased to talk with Molly Pope. She is an infant and early childhood mental health consultant who specializes in supporting children, families, and classrooms. She's worked with young children and families as a school psychologist for 17 years. And together with Molly, we'll be discussing ways to enhance connection with your children, even when you're feeling frustrated, support your children in managing their emotions, and options to support your own family's well-being. Molly, thank you so much for being with us. We're really happy to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. So Molly, we like to start with a lightning round so our listeners can get to know you just a little bit. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about a little bit about your background and some of your favorite things. Tell us about the path that you have taken to be an early childhood mental health consultant. What led you to this role? Yeah, I, like you said, I started as a school psychologist and I worked in early childhood and I love that age and I love the development that's happening at that time. Uh, And then I moved on to early elementary, so still working with the young kids. And around the same time, I became a mom and I had my own kids and thought I was going to rock it. I had all this knowledge and experience and parenting hit me hard. It was really, really challenging. So professionally, you know, I thought, learn more, just like find out how to figure out this behavior, how to support my kids. So I really started to seek out trainings and um, more education around kids' behavior and how that linked to their feelings. And I eventually ended up going back to grad school at Erickson to study infant mental health. And that really opened up this whole understanding of attachment and Mm -hmm. what's happening with young families and how those attachment patterns really set kids up for how they are in relationships and has a lot to do with their behavior with their parents. So I ended up going out on my own and... um, becoming a parent coach so I could really work with families who are dealing with big behaviors and trying to figure that out and to be kind of the best they can be while still just being themselves. Um, And then also still consulting with schools because really my jam is supporting adults who are caring for and working with young children. It's a hard place to be and I think people need support so that's why I'm here. Well, we're so glad you're here, and everything we're going to talk about today is going to link back to that, supporting the adults. We have um, know, and from even our practice, that the outdoors can be such a wonderful setting for our youngest learners to explore, to take in, and and we also know it's good for adults. Um, Do you have any games that you, when you think about being in the outdoors and exploring, that you like to use with young learners? Yes. Um, I mean super fun and I learned it from my kids from uh and my nieces and nephews so whenever we get together we always play Mr. Fox do you know Mr. Fox but for our listeners who don't yes you explain it a little bit so someone is the timekeeper and they stand in front of the line of everybody else and their back is to them and you say they say Mr. Fox Mr. Fox what time is it and that person in the front gets to say it's 
seven o'clock, it's five o'clock, and that's how many steps you can get to the person. And then when they say 12 o'clock, you're released and you can try to capture. So it becomes a big game of chase. And it's even great. I brought it to one of the preschools where I was. And even the youngest kids who don't have a lot of language can, there's so much anticipation and it really is even getting at executive functioning skills of kind of waiting and then having a go, right? There's some inhibition skill that's being worked on there. So it's also just a lot of fun. And embedding some of those early numeracy skills. There you go. Right? Yes. And patterns and time. I love it. I love that. How about um, your favorite fictional character? And and tell us a little bit about why, what you find endearing about that character. I love this question. You know, I was like, well, I don't have to pick a kid character, but that was what came up for me was Ramona Quimby, mm. age eight. Mm. I think for me, I was reading it right when I was that age, age eight. And what I loved about Ramona was she wasn't too girly. You know, she had a doll named Chevrolet and she wanted to be a fireman. <laughs> and, you know, so she slept in her clothes like with her clothes under her pajamas and tried that out and I just I loved how she was so she made mistakes and her family embraced her and then her family made mistakes too it just felt very real and accepting to me so love Ramona I I love that I love that example how about an unexpected household object that lent itself to imaginative play whether you were little or with your own children yeah so I grew up in an old farmhouse and we had an old enamel white stove and it had two ovens and one was just broken it didn't it didn't work so I got to use it as my play oven when my mom would be cooking. So, I mean, it's not that unusual, but, like, to get to have an oven, I could put stuff Full in. size, not Full the teeny. Size. Like, what what did some of us have? I didn't have it, but the, the bake, easy bake. Right. <laughs> no, full size. So, so real deal. Real deal. It was fun. And, I, I yeah, I was that. a big player of house, big uh, dramatic play person when I was little. Well, I love that. And you've just given our listeners several ideas how they can incorporate some of those same options in their children's lives. It doesn't have to be a packaged product ready to roll, right? Use right. the things that are within your house and on your shelves. I love that. And I think, too, when I was thinking about my own kids, it's use the things your kids are super drawn to. So with my kids, the unusual object was Post-its. And Post-its are kind of like special, right? Like you want to save them because they're important. But once I let go of it and just was like, okay, we're going we're gonna to see what these Post-its can do. They were tickets to shows. You know, they, they had a lot of roles that they played. And once I just let go control on it, um, it was a really fun thing with, between me and my kids. Appreciate that example. So soon you are hosting a talk with our parents and caregiver community. Yeah. And we're titling it Family Reset, How to Stop Nagging and Start Connecting More. Tell us a little bit about what inspired the theme for this. And, and we want to understand it as a topic that we'll be focused on. Yeah. So this came from a theme I was hearing from my parent clients. And parents would call and tell me that things have gotten really bad and, you know, we don't know how to change things, how to turn the boat around. And it can be a really helpless feeling. And I think some parents can be like, well, I guess this is life now. This is just what family life is. Um, And when you're in that rut, too, I think it can just not feel good, right? If you're finding yourself nagging a lot, you're not the parent or the person that you want to be. Um, And so I want to let parents know it's temporary and it's normal. Um, 
And that when we do find ourselves in a rut where family life feels like a chore and we're having the same negotiations over and over and we're nagging or snapping more than we want, um, we often feel like we have to get our kids to like shape up and we got to get them more disciplined. And there's this um, just sense that we need to like be firmer and harder when I think, in fact, we really need to pause and go in the other direction um, and let in more connection, more love for ourselves, our kids. It's like when a tug of war is happening, you're not trying to pull harder. It's really an option to let go of the rope. Um, so yeah, in this talk, I really want to give parents a roadmap of how to identify what's not working and who it isn't working for and make a plan that feels good in your body, that feels like you can be that parent you want to be and learn how to engage your kids in the solution. Because to drop that tug of war rope, we need to trust that we're not just letting go and we're going to let everything happen in love and peace, but that we're actually going to be stepping into a place of confidence in our family, in our parenting, where we can really lead with strong love. So that, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah. We want to hear from you, and I feel like you've woven that in. When you describe your core values when it comes to parenting and nurturing children. Yeah. What are they? Yes, yes. Um... I mean, first and foremost, I think we really need compassion, both for ourselves and for our children, you know, to acknowledge that this is the first time you've been put in this position as a parent, and often mm. you're being asked, you know, like, well, what's your response? How are you going to handle this? And um, to really be compassionate with yourself that I haven't done this before, and I'm still learning, and my kid's at this new stage of development. Um, and I think we can be a lot harder on ourselves than um, is usually helpful. And then I think curiosity is such an important value to have, both curiosity about what's happening for your kid. You know, if your kid just said, I hate you so much, you're the worst mom in the world. It's like, oh, all right. So maybe not taking things personally <laughs> might be another value, but also to be curious, like, wow, something really big's going on there. I wonder what's happening for them. Um, and I think the other value that to me is just, you know, it's just so important that to communicate to your kid that I am your person. I'm here when you need me. Um, and if I go away because you go to school or I go to work, I'm always going to come back. So even when you're at your messiest and your scariest, I can handle it and I'm going to be your person. And I think when kids know and can trust that, there's just a lot of um, flexibility in that relationship to you know, connect and to mess up and to know that mistakes are, you know, fixable and they're forgivable and they're just part of the human experience so whatever however you'd name that but letting them know that you're their person and i appreciate you sharing it in that way also the mistakes as adults that we own those yeah and that we're okay to show our children the messiness of our life yeah what an in, a, in an age-appropriate way we're not yes. giving them all that <laughs> right. we're carrying but that they see that you know, parents can also, parents, caregivers sometimes struggle as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah to normalize that, totally. Yeah, yeah. So when we think about everything that's in the last several years, so many people speculate on the impact of the pandemic and a combination of that and the technology that for many families and young children became a part of their life at a much earlier age than maybe we would like or yeah. we believed in in our family. The school put that on us. Are there any behavior shifts that you're seeing in young learners' development that you would say, let's attribute that to the pandemic 
and the tech? Or do you feel like that's like kind of that easy scapegoat of, oh, we're just blaming everything now that's happening on the pandemic? No, I, I think that that's a, a good thing to name and call out that has been, you know, the catalyst for a lot of change. I think we all experienced a collective trauma that even now, four years later, we're only just kind of getting to figure out, like, we are the study that, you know, mm. is going to be talked about in years in the future of what that experience did to a whole population and culture. So when I think about, you know, the behaviors of that have changed or were influenced by the pandemic, I mean, I th- think of the adults first. I know most adults would report that their own tech use or, you know, how they use tech has changed. And then that kind of changes, you know, just your family dynamic. And um, yeah, I mean, I think kids' attention and kind of how we communicate with kids, um, just we have to be a lot more thoughtful because people's attention spans, I think, are influenced by the tech that they're using. So again, back to this idea of nagging and and feeling like you need a reset, um, to have really good strategies of how to, you know, be empathetic that this might be a challenge and how to give information to your kids so that they can really hear you and you're not just, you know, the Charlie Brown teacher in the background because you don't have their full attention. But I think how we communicate, really, we need to be more thoughtful about if we want to be communicating successfully. It makes me think about um, the difference between control, nagging, and maybe healthy boundaries. Yeah, yeah, good one. And it's easy to, to say not to do something, but to talk about that as a family or talk about what we're noticing. All the things you said, being curious about what we're noticing as a family or maybe something we want to change. Yeah. And I think, you know, with all those things, uh, you know, throw it in like a diet mentality. Mm. If we are really harsh or if we're really extreme in how we're going to approach a problem or make a change, you know, as a family, um, we're kind of setting ourselves up for failure. So I always kind of remind parents that if something feels super urgent, let that be a red flag that it's not calling you to act urgently, but it's calling for your attention, but how you roll out whatever plan or solution you want to, you know, bring out to that problem. It doesn't need to be done in urgency. Ah, I appreciate that. Yeah. We don't have to immediately react. We can be thoughtful. We know we have to act. Yeah. Like it's worrying me. It's bubbling. Huh. But pause and think about what's the best next step versus coming down hard and heavy. Right. Uh, Okay. Yeah. My pediatrician, I'm still holding it because my son is 17 now, but he used to say to me, Molly, you got 18 years with them, 18 years to like teach them to put their napkin in their lap (laughs) at dinner or, you know, to brush their hair in the morning. Um, Now I only have one year, so I'm a little bit, (laughs) the urgency is tempting. But yeah, when that urgency shows up to me, it's a real red flag to like, oh, I I want to be thoughtful about this. I don't want to respond in kind. I I, I have to work on that. <laughs> My children are a little bit older, so we're past that 18 mark, but still, still got time. Still got still, time. <laughs> still have time. So working with so many families of young children, you have the unique perspective on what may happen behind closed doors, or you may you may learn and understand what families are going through in a different way than we do. And we all know as parents, we all can identify moments where we feel great shame for 
the way our child is behaving or acting or yeah. has done an action of our children or something that we've done in response to um, what's going on with our child. Yeah. What words of, of comfort and guidance do you have to share with us in those moments of true embarrassment or frustration as yeah. parents? Gosh, I mean... Well, I've been there, so (laughs) I answer from a very knowing place of just uh, having been there myself. But, you know, if someone is listening to this and is, you know, feeling that, I always just want people to know you're not alone and you're not bad, you're human. Um, And when there's shame, usually it's coming from a belief that we are bad or wrong, not just that we did something bad or wrong. So self-compassion, again, is really important. And how we speak to ourselves matters. So to have some compassionate self-talk that's in our back pocket that we can give to ourselves in those moments. And, you know, that could sound like I'm doing the best that I can. Uh, This is a hard moment, not who I am. Or my child is having a hard time right now, right? This isn't personal. They're having a hard time. And with a lot of parents, I coach them in how to repair, which is a little bit more than apologizing. But once you start repairing and having that be part of your family culture, especially repairing with your kids, I know for me, it just released some belief that I had that I was supposed to get everything right the first time. Um, And I know I'm not alone in having that belief, but again, like how would we get everything right when often you're coming up against something for the first time? So you're going to mess up, your partner's going to mess up, your kid's going to mess up, and repair can be that place of just loosening that vice grip on trying to get everything right and holding yourself to such unreasonable, you know, perfect parenting standards. Um, You know, it's necessary too with your children that you're modeling kind of this example of how do we repair, how do we recover when we had a misstep. We appreciate that at, at the school lens. We we talk with parents and children about um, mistakes and, and honoring those and that, that same message of it doesn't define you. Yeah. What's most important is what do we do next? How do we take this as an opportunity to learn? And think about did I harm anyone? Do I need to work on repair? What might I learn from this and, and try something differently? And I think that idea of compassion, um, also like looking left and right, compassion for the parents around us who are yeah. doing the best we can and helping each other. It's hard sometimes yeah. in this high-pressured society community to say we always have to get it right, as do our children. Yeah, and I think, you know, having some buddies like that mm. you can text when you're really like, oh, man, I really blew it, um, who can lift you back up and remind you of, you know, the good parent that you are. So related to that and all the different strategies you talk about and challenges, we've heard you reference creating a healthy mind platter. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it comes from Dan Siegel, who's a neuropsychologist, parenting expert, and he really names the seven activities that we all need for positive mental health, right? So to have kind of healthy brain, healthy mind, healthy body. Um, and I really encourage anyone who's like listening just to Google it so they can kind of see um, that healthy mind platter. But the activities are things that we know are good for us. And we just, I think, forget or we don't give it enough credence and space in our life. But it's sleep. Mm. It's physical time where we move our bodies. Focus time. So like work where you're really focused. Connecting 
time. So connecting with others, connecting with animals, right? That we're getting some connection. Downtime where we can have space to daydream, space out, uh, playtime, and then time in. And that's where we can reflect on our thoughts and feelings, sensations, kind of make connections with our experience. And I bring this to my clients as a check-in to kind of see where are you and your family getting and, you know, what what are you struggling to meet? And I think as kids get older, it's also a good way for them to, you know, more autonomously look at oh, I have been spending a lot of time on video games. I haven't been getting outside and I always did like to play outside. I, you know, I wonder if I walk the dog, like that can count as my outdoor time. And maybe it also counts as my connecting time because I'm hanging out with the dog. So I think it's just a good um, topic and it's a good way to introduce that conversation to a family. I, I could imagine that um, can be a really important step to just pause and look at how am I how am I spending my time yeah take stock no because again you can't solve something if you don't know what the issue is um and if it's gosh I'm just feeling so sluggish I don't feel like I have enough energy I feel disconnected so to kind of use that as a marker of what am I not getting what do I need more of you I'm sure have some families whom you've worked with that might think this this is it yeah. Molly we're yeah someone recommended you and I just think oh, we are beyond repair do you have any examples of that has occurred and it's really actually only been some really small shifts that have, have helped bring wellness to their to their family unit yes. or to their their family life yeah you know I mean that's more than half the families that come to me are probably feeling that way and, and like like I said before that kind of hopeless feeling we're beyond help but when there's willing adults there when they're willing to really look at their behavior and they get that if I change that trickles down to you know things changing with my kids then I'm in right then mm-hmm. we can talk mm-hmm. about something And I did have a family who had two young boys under five, and mom was pregnant with the third boy on the way, and she was on bed rest. So already the boys were experiencing limited mom time, Mm -hmm. and they were seeing kind of the behavior that was coming from that. And they were anxious that, okay, so once the infant's really here and mom, again, is limited in how available she is, how do we kind of set our boys up to adjust to that? So that was what like the issue they came to me with and because mom was on bed rest and dad was in charge and was having to do a lot more on his own than he typically had and um one of the things he named as most challenging was the weekend his five-year-old would just wake up and start asking so what are we doing now what are we doing now what are we doing now and the dad had run out of ideas. It was like by, you know, 11 o'clock, he's like, I don't know what to say anymore. So just even in naming one problem with them and um, focusing in one area with that a family like that, just to get them out of the weeds and out of the mindset that all is lost was helpful. And every family is different, right? Different personalities and different flavors, different priorities. But for this dad, he was really challenged by his son's constant questioning. And it became clear that his son really struggled in other areas of his day where it was kind of opened and undefined. Mm -hmm. And we talked about, you know, how important for, especially for some kids to have a schedule to kind of know what's coming next. Because when we hear kids asking a lot of questions like that, it's often from some underlying anxiety that they're trying to soothe. So with dad, we worked with, um, and 
you know, he was just kind of loosey-goosey. He wasn't a planner. So for him to understand, I'm not a planner, but this is what my kid needs. And then to work with him to make like a real basic visual schedule, because that's what his kid gets at preschool, right? So we can replicate that for a weekend. And it doesn't mean you need to come up with all these like wild and activities and keep it super busy. You can just have a chunk that says, you know, playtime at home and then that's what you're he, he knows you're doing and then there's a snack time and then there's you know outdoor play and that just really helped them kind of give a framework of oh this is what he actually needs and we can really meet him in a pretty doable way so again sounds like your support um really is customizing based on what yeah. you're getting that feedback you're getting from a family customizing their special plan of yeah attacking one or a few areas yeah because you know i there's so many parents out there are such good parents and they have you know they want to learn and there's dr becky's out there and there's books you can read but there can be this disconnect you read the strategy you try to implement it and it just doesn't quite work and it makes you almost compounded like makes you feel more like a failure it compounds that feeling and um, so, yeah, that's really where I love to step in with families and say, like, what's not working for you? And then, you know, what do you need? What's the one thing? That's great. Yeah. We have um, so many parents, and you you just referenced that. Life is busy. Their days are busy. It, it could be work, home, and, and everything else in terms of demands. So some people listening may say, you know, all of this sounds great. I have such good intentions to to pause, to have compassion, to be curious. Um, but they may say, I just I just don't have time for this. So mm-hmm. if you were to narrow down to one thing, one strategy or shift that you would say encourage a family to start with, encourage a parent or caregiver to start with, is there? Does yeah. it exist? Yeah, <laughs> the silver bullet. You know, I think I mentioned urgency before, mm-hmm. and I think mm-hmm. keeping that in mind um, – And again, like thinking about if we find ourselves nagging, if we find ourselves in a lot of negotiations, I love the phrase to use with kids, what's your plan? Because if we see someone who, you know, in their play, if this is a younger kid um, in preschool who's just kind of feeling a little destructive and gosh, they can't play on their own, it might be that they need some ideas with their play. And rather than come in as the adult and say, oh, well, we can build a hospital and then the people are doctors and make up the play scheme, we really invite the child to start thinking about their thinking. So what's Hmm. your plan here? It can also deter someone who has picked up the garden hose and is about to spray the neighborhood kids with, you know, oh, I see you got the hose. What's your plan there? And it is a good way to do some redirecting before, you know, the crap hits the fan. And then I think also it's a great phrase in conflict when there's, you know, siblings who are battling over something. It's to really ask like, hey, Sam, it sounds like your plan was to use the magnetiles all by yourself. But then Billy came in and he wanted to use the magnetiles. He had a plan for them too. I wonder if we can work out a plan for the both of you. So this idea that there's plans, mm-hmm. um, and then in the t- in this like idea of schedules, like here's what our family plan is today. It just kind of gets kids clued in to oh, I can a make a plan. I can be part of a plan. Plans can be negotiable or you know, um, flexible if something doesn't work out. 
but it just gets you out of having to come up with the solution and puts you in a seat of being curious with your kids. Um, so I, I use it all the time, teenagers to down to little ones. It can be really helpful. I'm gonna I'm gonna tag along that because you you've even in that one example you gave so many wonderful key phrases and how to use that language of what's your plan. Are there any key phrases you'd lead in with? If my child is just melting down mm. in a public environment and not in the the privacy of our own home, yeah. that can lead into moving a child or supporting a child to to move forward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gosh. So if someone's in their someone's melting down, they're in that downstairs brain where mm-hmm. they don't have access to language and they don't have access to a lot of listening and processing your language. So the less you say, the better. And to me, I mean, it depends on the age. If we have a person who's young and is pick upable, then <laughs> that's what you're going to do. And to me, the only language you're doing, saying is um, you're explaining what you're doing. I'm going to pick you up now. I'm going to bring you to the car. I'm going to put you in your seat. You know, we're going to have a chance to talk about it. I know it's really hard. So it's limited language. And if you have an older person who's really melting down, you're also trying to protect their dignity, right? Mm-hmm. That's um, your discomfort. I think don't feel shame if you that you're like, oh, I'm, I shouldn't be embarrassed. I should be able to step in for my kid. What's uncomfortable about those moments is your own kid's dignity. And so it is right to feel like moved to act quickly. Um, and I think it is just giving them a chance of, I see you. This is really hard. And you just kind of want to name what's happening for them and um, just give them a chance to kind of catch their breath. That's really all you're trying to do. So we're not processing it. We're not solving not processing, it now. That's we're not a teaching. Later. Right. Yes, yes. I appreciate that. And the true, they've gone to lower brain. It doesn't, yeah. that's not effective at that time. Yeah. And whatever lesson they need to learn that it's not appropriate to act this way, whatever, you know, thing they did. Again, there's time to teach the lesson. Right now, we just need to bring someone down to let them know, I see you're having a hard time. I'm going to help you. Is there anything, Molly, you've shared so many different (laughs) options and just really thoughtful, intentional language that our parents are going to love. Whether you're a a District 35 parent or even some of our educators who this can transfer into what we can support and do support in the classroom. Is there anything we haven't asked you that you want to be sure our listeners hear from you? Do you know, just because I just said like that downstairs brain and it really is that time where kids aren't, you know, receptive Mm -hmm. to problem solving with you, talking with you, learning the lesson from you. Um, But once they are kind of once they're out of that emotional uh, phase, that stage, that moment, um, and you do see that there it's time to problem solve a little bit, like what went wrong here? I always think of the rule of three yeses and It's really just reflective listening, but you want to state what you think is happening for that kid in a way that's going to, they're going to respond with yes. So again, a way to do that is to phrase you wanted, right? So you wanted to be done with the work, you know, so that you could get out to recess. Yeah. And you thought if you just kind of rushed through that would be the quickest way to get to recess yeah and it was just really frustrating that I made you go back to your desk and 
sit down and redo it. Yeah. Okay. Now we can start maybe coming up with a plan and 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 it really helps the child process what just happened in their body. You know, if they flipped a chair or like screamed at their teacher or something happened, there can be a lot of just confusion and you know, what were those feelings? What just came out of me? So to have an adult who can walk you through what just happened and organize that experience for a child, what a gift. It's really helpful. I haven't heard it said that way before with the three yeses. Yeah, three yeses. yeses. Molly, thank you so much for joining us and to our parents and listeners. Thank you for being here and investing your time and your learning. If you'd like to learn more from Molly Pope, be sure to view or listen to our recording from her visit on February 21st. We will have that posted on our website, as well as you can visit her website at mollypopeparentcoach.com. As always, thank you to our student musicians for the fantastic performances they shared within our podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much.